round. There it goes. There we go. Okay. So, Mark, I'll let you continue on. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. I'm afraid I was just starting to ramble a little bit, honestly. I have a lot of ideas bouncing around in my head right now. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess one thing I wanted to like ask you about is uh, like how to carry... Like, like, so I do the sitting practice... And then what do I do when I'm not doing the sitting practice and I'm like kind of just living my life? Don't worry, be happy. Mm -hmm. That's what the training is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Another way of saying don't worry is uh, don't be in a state of unsatisfactoriness. Bring your mind into a state of satisfactoriness. There's many ways to do that, but the best one is by thinking about the Dhamma. Thinking about, is this suffering? No, it's not suffering. Whoop-de-doo. I'm in a state of not suffering. I'm not suffering right now. Isn't that marvelous? And people need to do that because normally, when, when especially when we hear Buddhism from the perspective of having lived in a, in a, a Western Christian culture, with the idea of sin and original sin and great big things and all of that, um, that we we need to re-establish it so that it's back to this present moment. That the sin that we're committing in the mind of this present moment, the hindrances that are there, is not that big a deal, especially if we can catch it. Um, let me give you this example. Uh, the, the example would be three things. One is a bullet fired from a gun. Another one is an arrow shot from the bow. And a third one is a spear thrown. Which one is the heaviest? Is the spear. Which one is the lightest weight? Is the bullet. Which one goes the fastest? Is the bullet because it's lightweight and which is the slowest is the spear, okay? If we can dodge a bullet, then we're up to um, magical level or up to the level of uh, a matrix. But it is also possible for a warrior to see an arrow coming and to stop it, to stand out of the way of it, or in a spectacular way, catch it in mid-flight. But that's spectacular. But if you see a spear thrown at you, it's actually so slow that you can actually get out of the way of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they come slow. So in this regard, this is part of the practice of the learning that we're doing is to be able to catch things quicker. So that we start off with really slow stuff like an easy softball. And then we work up to having spirits thrown at us, which is normal life. The slings and arrows of, of ordinary life generally come pretty fast. The question right, is, right. is the mind going to be sharp enough to catch that stuff? And our thoughts come at us sometimes pretty fast, too. And so we have to learn to catch them. To catch them in the sense of, is this wholesome or is this an unwholesome thought? 
But we, many people don't even know about being on guard to guard the mind, to have wholesome thoughts in it. They've never been taught that. They've been mm-hmm. taught with a set of rules. You should not hate Johnny, but that doesn't mean anything. But yeah. it says that every time you have thoughts of Johnny, you should throw those thoughts out because they're unwholesome is not the language that people use. They just say you shouldn't hate him or whatever. But they don't have any real tools or techniques for how to find that stuff in the mind. In the yeah. sense of one thought at a time. Because hate is not a big, big deal that lasts a long time. But hate is just one negative thought, and then another negative thought, and then another negative thought later, and then another negative thought in another time. That the, the hatred is not consistent. Mm. And so we use our language as if things were consistent when in fact they're not. But things arise and then they pass away and then they arise again and they pass away. And our normal uh, functioning of the mind with the ability to connect dots. We connect the dot to see that, oh, I had a thought of, uh, of uh, anger towards that guy uh, five minutes ago. And now I have another thought of anger about that guy. Therefore, for the whole five minutes, I must have hated him. And no, you think about all kinds of stuff. Other than that, he was out of the mind. Hmm. If you can see it like that, that we have to be able to connect the dots, but recognizing that that's what we're doing is we're connecting the dots, that really it was that event and then this event or this particular now or this mind moment, that it's not a continuous hatred. Uh, that anxiety is like that. That anxiety also comes in fits and spurts, depending upon how much adrenaline and other things like that are, are, are coming. But we have the feeling or we have the idea that this stuff is continuous. Hmm. In fact, yeah. it's not. It's not. It just comes up. And when we can begin to watch it as it comes up, when we arise it, we can be really fast for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so uh, this is what I mean by being able to catch a spear. If we can begin to catch a spear, then we can begin to catch uh, uh, more subtle things. Now, what I mean by catching the spear would be something that's really, really big. Now, sometimes people are not able to work with something really big because it's overwhelming to them. In other words, they see the spear coming and they freak out. They're not capable of grabbing the spear. They're, they're nowhere near uh, training the mind to catch the spear because they're too afraid of it. So with that person, we need to work with something more subtle. But for many people, let's go ahead and, and go after the really big ones, like anger. Anger is a really big one. Why? Because it really does. It takes over. It's really, really powerful. But because of that, it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. It's easy to see. And yet many people are um, angry and, and fussing and fighting and making bad language and all that kind of stuff. And their friend comes up and says, oh, what are you angry about? And he says, I'm not angry. Well, that's just a state of denial. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I've Where noticed, gonna, like, uh, so it seems like like in sitting practice, like I'll notice like some big, like if I get completely off track and I'm like, you know, 
head in the clouds, whatever, for mm -hmm. a minute. Then I notice that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, aha. Uh aha. -huh. Uh -huh. The distraction. Mm -hmm. And then go back to the breath. And then it'll get to be where there'll be like just a lot of really like subtle little like um like little like something in my chest and then like some emotion and thoughts and but I'm still sort of aware of the breath. So is it mm -hmm. just you know as I keep doing the practice I get more I can start picking out those smaller things, kind of. Okay. Is well, that... number number one, first off. Congratulations. You're beginning to see. You're beginning to wake up. Number two, this is very, very common. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes through this step. Step or point number three is um, that they think or they think people will say that it's like background. Yeah, I can watch my breath but all these thoughts are in the background. Now, this is a point that needs to be um, discussed because we can kind of think of the mind as doing basically one thing at a time. It's like your, your index finger. You can only point to one thing at a time. You can't, with your index finger, point at two different things at the same time. One of them is in the background, right? Just, just like it's very difficult to read something on the internet and listen to someone talk on the internet at the same time. You can go back and forth. And sometimes you can go back and forth quick enough that you can catch and follow what's happening in both of them. But normally we do one at a time. So in that regard, there's no such thing as a background. It's not background noise, it's noise that is in the foreground for a short period of time and then other mind moments are doing other things and then the noise comes back and we say all oh, the noise is in the background. So in that regard, there'll be one mind moment where we're paying attention to the breath and then while we're actually still doing that in breath, we'll have thoughts. And so we, we, we see the thoughts but the thoughts are not in the background. Now they're in the foreground. There they are. Mm -hmm. And the breath is not. But we, so what we're looking at here, the way that it's stated in the sutta, is that um, we need to have sati twice with each breath. Sati on the in-breath to make sure that it's a long, deep in-breath. And sati on the out-breath to make sure that it's a long out-breath. So that long, deep in-breath and long, deep out-breath, we need to remember because if we don't remember to take a long, deep out-breath, then we'll forget and the mind might wander away from the breathing altogether into thought. So while we're practicing with a long, deep in-breath and a long, deep out-breath, there's plenty of time. In fact, as we're slowing our breathing down, we're breathing now maybe at about five breaths a minute, at about 12 seconds for an in-breath and an out-breath. That's a long time. That's a lot of thinking going on in 12 seconds. Time for a breath, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is what you're beginning to talk about is, is that you're saying that while I'm watching the breath, the mind rolls on. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. Yep. But while... While we're watching the breath, we can begin to control it. Go ahead. 
You had something to say. Oh, no, no sir. Okay. I was just scratching. Okay. My... All right. So, um, as the mind rolls on, we had Sati originally to remember to watch the breath. Now we are watching the breath, but the, the thinking is still going on. Now's the time to start to control the kind of thinking that we have while we're breathing in and while we're breathing out. And not in the sense of instantaneously the while, but in the sense of breathing in and thinking wholesome and breathing out and thinking wholesome and breathing in and thinking wholesome, kind of like that. And I'm emphasizing wholesome here in the sense that we're actually going to start controlling the mind in the sense of only allowing a certain kind of thought in and not allowing other kinds of thoughts in. An example is when a student is actually listening to the Dhamma from his teacher and paying close attention to what the teacher is saying, the student is not letting thoughts of the past and the future or whatever come in. He's actually listening to the Dhamma and focused on it. And yet when we sit down in meditation, instead of continuing to mull over that Dhamma and think about the Dhamma and do something wholesome with it, instead we let the mind just kind of what we would call run amok, mm-hmm. which means it's going to run into the muck. <laughs> it's going, if, we, if we allow it to wander, it's going to wander into cesspits, it's going to wander into thickets, it's going to wander into old bad memories, it's going to bring about dukkha if we let the mind just wander around in what Freud calls free association that this thought just naturally gives rise to that thought without any intermediate judgment as to what that thought is worthwhile having or not. So now we're going to start guarding the mind with the intention while we're watching the in-breath and the out-breath to only allow good, wholesome thoughts. Now, we can, push, we can actually classify the good, wholesome thoughts into two major categories. And that is paying attention to the here now directly. The other one is paying attention to the here now with regard to the Buddha's Dhamma. In other words, we begin to see Dhamma in everything. And so we begin to look at things in the sense of making the judgment call, is this suffering or not? Is this dukkha? Or am I free from dukkha? Is this thought dukkha-provoking? Or is it a satisfying thought? Will this thought take me away from the breathing? Or will this thought help promote me staying on the breath? These are the kind of thoughts that we're going to have because we're going to intentionally throw out the thoughts that are unwholesome and begin to hold into the mind thoughts that are wholesome. And one kind of wholesome thought for sure is thoughts of the Dhamma, which means basically thoughts of non-harming, thoughts of uh, not wanting, the thoughts of um, refraining from disliking things, and just being comfortable and happy in the moment, seeing the way things are. So, let's go back to the second noble truth for just a minute, and notice that that's what we've covered, that so long as the, the mind is free from any ingredients of the 
of the second noble truth, then because we're not causing suffering, the likelihood of it arising is very low. So thoughts of non-greed, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of uh, non-harming. Well, if you think of it like this, the restless wandering mind is a way of harming oneself. Expending unnecessary energy and wandering into wrong places where we might wind up feeling bad. So having a restless, wandering mind actually is harming ourselves. Feeling bad is harming ourselves. So if we're going to have thoughts of non-harming, or abhimsa is the Pali word for it, what that means is, is that we're going to have thoughts of friendliness towards ourselves. Rather than, oh, there I go again, I can't watch the breath, it's so much work, maybe I'm not doing it right. These, these kind of thoughts are the very hindrances that prevent us from enjoying our life. Is we're constantly judging ourselves that we're not good enough. So in a way, we're going to now start judging ourselves so that we always pass. We're satisfactory. We're good enough. You're not missing anything. You don't have to be perfect. How you are is fine. And so these are the kind of thoughts which are actually quite related to Dhamma and related to this present moment, that right now is good. Or we can expand that to the watching the breath and beginning to examine the chest and notice that, oh, it's just a chest, it's going up and down, and it keeps us alive. This is a nice chest. But a lot of people can think about their chest and find all kinds of things wrong with it. Oh, there's a little there, and there's mm -hmm. a, oh, it's got too much hair, or any kind of thing like that, and we're around judging and finding fault with things. And so we need to stop finding fault with things and start finding the good things in it. Basically, really making friends, especially making friends with that deep down uh, part of us inside that uh, Byrne would call the, the child inside of us. Basically, that child that is referred to metaphorically is actually part of the brain. It's the old reptilian brain, and it's the source of all of our feelings and emotions, as well as the source of all of our instinctual behavior. It's the basic mind, the mind that is not really well developed. When a baby is born, they can't think, they can't talk. There's a lot of development that has to go on for, for a child to grow up. Much of that is the development of the frontal cortex, because when the, when the baby's born, the anterior cortex is already set to go. So the child can breathe and cry and do all kinds of wiggling, but they don't have much control. But Without that reptilian brain already functioning, the child's not going to be born. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this reptilian brain, though, winds up, as we grow up, we tend to remember the, the, uh, the hardships. And the reason that we remember the, the tough times is because it's a self-preservation instinct. The instinct is to preserve the self and the primary method of communication is fear. So the primary basic emotion that we have is the emotion of fear. On top of that is anger. 
Anytime that someone is angry, there's a, there's a basic fear under it. No one gets angry unless they have fear as the base for it. They have a sense of loss. You can't do that. You can't park there. It's wrong for you to park there. That anger comes from, oh, I'm afraid that if he parks there, I won't be able to park there or something like that. So I'm losing something when they do something. Therefore, because I'm losing something, that gives me justification to get it back because it was mine. And therefore, my anger becomes righteous and it's okay for me to feel angry. Okay, because people feel powerful when they're angry. But one thing that we can intellectually understand, that anger never works. People who are yelling and are in an argument with each other, no one is going to convince the other anything. Arguments cannot be won. Anger does not work. And that's a very, very difficult uh, teaching to come to, because most of us think that our anger is justified. We've got a reason to be angry. But when we recognize, oh no, the anger is just covering up fear, let's start looking at that instead, then we can get ourselves back into a state of equanimity or a state of relaxation and peace, etc., like that. So this is how we're going to practice the, uh, our sitting meditation, is first to place the mind on the breath, and then to keep the mind on the breath or in, this, in the sense of using the breath as an anchor for the here now. Because you can't do next week's breath. It's going to be this breath in this moment. And so that takes us out of the mind's past and future and hindrances and all of that that's got nothing much to do with the here now and brings us right here to this present moment. So we want to now have thoughts that are going to keep us in this present moment and not allow the kinds of thoughts that are going to draw us into the past or into the future. And by doing so, we forget about the breath. Right? Oh. So let's really look at the idea of what kind of thoughts shall we have that are going to be wholesome, wholesome thoughts. Well, thoughts about here now are wholesome. Thoughts that are not about the here now are uh, suspicious. The thoughts that we have about mm -hmm. what's happening right now is good. And generally, right now is safe. Look around your environment right there. You don't have any gorillas. There's no pythons. There's no ones with, uh, with axes. There's no uh, uh, knights in armor with, with swords drawn about to harm you. Mm -hmm. You're secure. Everything is secure right now. But when people are sitting in a secure place, why do they still feel afraid? What is this fear that we keep having? This, because it's the fear is the base of agitation. Fear is the base of restlessness. There's something, and basically the, uh, the bottom line of, uh, of restlessness is we need to change something because right now there's something wrong with it. And basically uh, how we know something is wrong with it is because of this feeling that arises that is associated with fear, insecurity. Things are not good enough right now. Mm -hmm. They're dangerous somehow, okay? 
but that comes out of our old programming that comes out of our instinctual behavior and and uh, uh, mechanisms and basically what you could say it is a false positive mm-hmm. why because it's registering fear when in fact there is nothing to be afraid of at all and yet that fear and in fact that fear can be so strong that you can know that there is no fear here and yet the heartbeat will will uh, speed up. For example, you can see a snake that's in a glass cage. And the heartbeat will go up. Um, you can get stopped by a cop. And oh, yeah. normally, if we're stopped by a cop, if we're cool, everything is good. But if we become afraid and agitated, then the cop will pick that up. He'll see it as criminal behavior. He'll get really suspicious. You get more freaked out, and the next thing you know, you're dead. He shot you. Oh. Yeah. And and uh, I could see how that was happening. That um, yes, uh, George Floyd was killed by the cops, but they had a good reason to kill him. He was afraid of them. Oh man. Yeah. And because he was afraid, and he and he was really afraid of him. Please don't kill me. Don't shoot me. Don't lock me up. Don't let me in here. And he was so freaked out with his fear that they thought that they had to control him and agitate him. And their very control of him was kept making him more agitated, more afraid. Mm-hmm. And so them trying to calm him down, they did it with a knee on the neck. <laughs> yep. Oh man. Okay, and and in fact, there was probably no reason for him to have gotten afraid. His fear was unjustified, but his fear was so remarkable that it actually killed him. So if we begin to understand that our fear literally drives our behavior when we, and is unconscious, that what the practice of meditation is, is to bring that stuff up consciously. But the way that we, here's, here's something kind of important that, uh, that we can see is, is that one, the big, the big feelings are really big and they're and easy to see, but for many people, they're too difficult to control. So what the way that we do this is we start simple giving the student the ability and the task to control his breath. If you can control your breath and watch the in-breath and the out-breath and slow it down and keep it that way, then naturally the feelings and the thoughts are going to arise. In fact, you can think of feelings themselves as a kind of thought, but it's not verbal. There's verbal thoughts, pre-verbal thoughts, and then deep kind of thoughts that would be uh, nonverbal, or if they made a noise, it wouldn't be a word, but uh, we still have that as, um, let us say, the object of the mind. So fear itself can be a kind of a thought. Hmm. But it's difficult to control that, so we need to begin uh, at the easy point of learning to control the breath. If we can control the breath, then we can begin to control the contents of the mind. 
so that we have wholesome thoughts and not have unwholesome thoughts. Generally, the unwholesome thoughts is what brings on unwholesome feelings. And wholesome thoughts bring on wholesome feelings. In that way, we can learn to control also the feelings, but we can only do so through the control of the thought and control of the breath. But it's very difficult to control the feelings directly without skill. Mm. Once you gain the skill, then as soon as you can see that uh, the not liking come up, you can immediately do something about it. Yeah, I think what I'm doing a lot now is trying to directly control the feelings, and it just doesn't really work. But no, that may, so you start with the breath and the thoughts, and then. Right. So the first yeah, we yeah. learn to control the breathing, then we can, can learn to control the thoughts to have only wholesome thoughts. And then literally with that controlling the, the thinking kind of thoughts or the verbal kind of thoughts, we actually can begin to control the feelings. You could go so far as to say you talked yourself into feeling bad. You can talk yourself into feeling good. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's how we can learn to control the feelings is by learning to control the thoughts. But sometimes when we're sitting in meditation, we are having, um, let us say, because we've just gotten started, that, and we are beginning to control the thoughts and, and calm the body and calm the mind down, and then we recognize that we have agitation. I can really feel that agitation. The way that we can work with that agitation is with the breathing. Rather than working with agitation directly, we use the breathing also instead and the verbal saying, never mind, everything is cool. We breathe deeply into the area of the body that we experience the anxiety. And then we can breathe out and, and, and imagine or tell ourselves that we're breathing out the anxiety that we're being is being removed, the trash is being taken out with the out breath. And then we take another deep, wholesome in breath and we begin. And so after three, four or five breaths, we can rid the, the body of uh, the adrenaline. If we've got the adrenaline switch turned off, how we turn that adrenaline switch off was by having wholesome thoughts and not having unwholesome thoughts anymore. So by controlling the thoughts and the breathing together will help us to learn to control the feelings. Mm -hmm. But the, the uh, initial thing is we've got to get um, uh, this system going. And so... Uh, the, the thinking of the good thoughts is, is often uh, referred to as step 10 of Anapanasati of gladdening the mind. Let's change the way that we're thinking. Instead of um, thinking about what a bad day I had, I can say, wow, I'm really free from that day. It's over now. I don't have to think about it anymore. I can sit here and enjoy myself now. I don't have to. And so we throw those old feelings out, those old thoughts out which are contributing to us feeling bad, and start having wholesome thoughts. And the more wholesome thoughts we have, and the fewer unwholesome thoughts we have, then the, the, uh, the body chemistry is going to 
become affected and we begin to start relaxing the body. The body will actually relax. But there's an important point about that, and that important point is uh, that the, the, the wake-up, the sati, is best woken up when there is some inspiration there. The inspiration would be like um, high-quality insight. When insight is really high-quality insight, it is it, what we call inspires us. Well, if you look at the word inspire, that means literally to take a deep in-breath, to inspire, to take in the air. The word spire comes from the word spirit, which it also has to do with um, atmosphere, hmm. atom, like in atmos. Uh, atmos. So uh, when we're inspired, that actually is a form of right energy, a right effort. We have the right effort because we're inspired. And so uh, that point of when we see the hindrances, uh, that hindrance, or uh, we recognize what the mind is doing and we investigate it a little bit, that's when the, uh, we can say, aha, I see you. That, that point of inspiration, I've got it. I see that the mind has got hindrances in it. That inspiration or the knowledge, that is actually now the new content of the mind mm -hmm. okay inspiration now is the content of the mind a second ago it was hindrances and now i've woken up and said oh, i see you oh, i caught you myra that was the word that the buddha used i caught you myra oh, i see you okay so that's a point of inspiration that inspiration or that wake up then allows us to further gladden the mind. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to feel that stuff anymore. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to do with that. Well, I'm glad I remembered that I can be happy right now. And so we begin to talk to ourselves in the kind of language that would be very wholesome. This is a good moment. This is good. Mm -hmm. And literally then can fall into a state of um, knowing that we can, in fact, throw the hindrances out. That's success. Throwing the hindrances out is, in fact, a major job of life. And you've just thrown them out, and so now you've, you can take satisfaction in the fact that you've done a good job. You're successful. Okay? So these kind of th uh, thoughts will give, you, give rise to the feeling of being successful, of satisfied. The, the, thoughts, uh, the thoughts of safety will then lead us into the feeling of safety. And the thoughts of being a winner of I can do this, or not I can do it, but this is done. It almost has the quality of hold my beer, you know that phrase, okay? <laughs> but it's in a very wholesome way. Uh, I'm up to the challenge, or yes, we can. Or this is this can we can do the can do attitude this new attitude of can do is a major change of attitude from the normal attitude that we have raised from childhood as the attitude of a victim the attitude of one down the attitude of one who needs help we need our diapers changed mental diapers also and so we seek out therapy or someone to help us where in fact 
really we have to do this ourselves. So when we know we can do it ourselves, that's confidence. Shraddha is the Pali word for it. Confidence. And that confidence is uh, the ingredient, those kind of thoughts, to give us the feeling of uh, success, the feeling of being a winner. The Buddha used the word lion, to become a lion, become strong. This is one's right attitude, the attitude of can-do. And that can-do attitude is, as an attitude, is based upon vocalizations of it, but it also is a feeling. In fact, this is a major feeling, a feeling of success, the feeling of relief, because that success then gives us the ability to completely relax. And with that relaxation and with that uh, feeling of success and security brings us into a state, the word is sukha. Sukha is uh, an important word in, in the Pali, but we often don't understand that the word sukha actually is the opposite of the word dukkha. It's actually the opposite sukha and dukkha. Dissatisfaction and satisfaction. And we bring ourselves into this state of satisfaction where the mind is sharp and focused and clear and it's free from hindrances. This state, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls a mind fit for work and what is traditionally referred to as first jhana because it's got the jhana factors there. What are the jhana factors? Number one, free from hindrance. Number two, um, uh, a feeling of success. Three, the feeling of satisfaction and security. And then number four, the mind is, you can apply the mind to what you want and keep it sustained there. What do I mean by applying the mind to what we want? That means we want to have only wholesome thoughts and not allow unwholesome thoughts in. By being able to apply that and sustain it so that we can begin to keep ourselves in this state of wholesome, happy, uh, satisfied state of being, we need to learn to maintain that. So as we maintain it, our ability to keep focused in keeping the mind free from hindrances and, and out of unwholesome states and in wholesome states, that's the whole show. That's it. Can you sustain being happy? Can you get yourself into a state of happiness and sustain it? That's what this is all about. That's what we mean by dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Literally, dukkha, sukha. Your choice. All you have to do is remember that you've got that choice. Everything is around sati. If you can't remember to do it, you can't do it. <laughs> if you forget about doing it, you won't do it. But if you can remember, and so this is the number one skill, is sati, sati, sati. Keep remembering, keep practicing to remember, to wake up, to watch your breath. And so sati is, in, in fact, there on a regular basis. Why? Because we have to have sati to remember that this is a long, deep breath. And sati to remember this is a long, deep out breath. Right. Now, the, the breathing is key. It's um, 
one of the ways of thinking about it is is that many students who have practiced meditation from other teachers who don't emphasize the breath when they hear me talking about it they're not quite convinced but i can expect that no the only way for the student to become convinced that the breathing is beneficial is by doing it by seeing for yeah. yourself that these long deep in breaths is very satisfying very beneficial and it keeps the uh help keeps the mind sharp and focused so that we can keep it in the wholesome state yeah. while we're practicing and is that type of breathing is that something you can just kind of do all day or is it like if just... you got into the habit of it, then naturally yeah. you would be doing it much of the day. Mm-hmm. All day, I don't know. That's, again, that Western perfectionism all the yeah. time. Mentality. <laughs> nope. Yep. We're looking at it at this time. Can you remember? At this time. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. what happens will be is, is that the breathing will naturally become long because it's naturally going back to its natural state. Normally, people breathe in an unnatural way because they breathe as if they're in a state of freeze or in the state of fear. And when we're fearful, we shut down. We're not fully awake. We're not fully aware. We're hiding, in fact. We literally tend to hide with our breathing. And that's why it's quick and shallow. Very shallow breathing, but it happens fairly quickly, about 20 breaths a minute for many. So we want to actually bring it down from 20, down to 10, maybe down to 5. Below 5 is um, more of a skill. And so to bring it back, uh, bring it down to about 5 breaths a minute, you can think of it as counting 5, 5, 2. 5 on the in-breath, 5 on the out-breath, and 2 between. And if you practice this, become aware of the fact that the body is going to start changing. You might, in fact, begin to feel tingly alive. In fact, a lot of students, as soon as they start feeling tingly alive, then they stop doing the deep breathing rather than continue to do it. But it's better to just keep on, just keep making sure that you're taking long, deep breaths, because that really does energize and purify the body, mm-hmm. as well as the mind. And it gets the mind really fit for work. And it also makes the body more healthy. We feel better. We don't feel tired because we're now getting all of the oxygen, more oxygen than we need. Yeah, I've definitely noticed. Yeah. Go ahead. Like, uh, I'm kind of, it surprises me a lot of, like, if I'm, like, stressed out from, like, work or something and. And I sit down, like when I start doing the breathing, it's like kind of tight and cramped and I have to, but then after, you know, like 10 minutes and walking around a little bit, another 10 minutes, like all of a sudden I just feel, you know, better. And then I'll sit back down and, you know, maybe like start doing work again. And for like five minutes, I'll be like still breathing nice and it's relaxing. And then I get like an email and someone calls me and, but I don't know. And then we forget all about our uh, immediate environment and our brain or our mind is in that email. Yeah, but, you know, one email, maybe I can read, but then something else pops up and then, oh, I got to do. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So that's mm-hmm. how does uh, like the like right livelihood. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
right livelihood is the natural outcome of right speech and right action. But right livelihood um, could actually be better translated as to right lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And the, you, the lifestyle that you pick up, including the kinds of ways that you make your living, is now based upon right speech and right action. But that right speech and right action is not based upon a set of rules of society. This right action is based upon the fact that the mind is in a good state. It's in a unified state. It's not separated or broken out or divided or uh, in segments. It's unified. Now, one of the things that will make the mind uh, disunified is when it is, um, let us say, uh, we want something we don't have. Well, that that means there's a division there. I'm not complete. I'm not whole without what I want. But when we recognize, no, I'm really good without it. I might like it, but I don't want it. Now the mind is unified. In that sense, we're unlikely to go harm someone or steal something if we don't want anything. We're not likely to harm someone if we're friends with them, that we like them, that we're wholesome. But we'll harm someone if we're angry. So basically the rule comes from Abihimsa, don't go harming people, don't beat people half to death or fully to death. I don't care how you feel, just don't do that. That's the kind of rule that we have. But in fact, in many laws, I think in the United States, you can't arrest someone because you know that they're about to do something. You have to actually have proof that they're about to do something. And one of the ways of proving it is because they actually did it. Nope. So the crime has to be committed. You can't arrest somebody before the crime unless you've got good, solid evidence that they're about to, uh, to do the crime. For instance, having explosives in your house and, making, and bomb making, that's evidence that you're going to set off a bomb. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this sure. is where we're going with that. All right, so now that we know that normally it has to do with what we've already done, is the wrongdoing. Here we're backing up into the mind because the mind is the forerunner and saying, if I am not angry or predisposed, then I'm unlikely to go do that harm. So if the heart is right, the for and against are forgotten. In that mm-hmm. regard, when the heart is right or when our mind is, is calm and collected, we're unlikely to want something bad enough to go steal it, nor are we uh, unhappy enough that we're actually going to go harm someone. So really, our um, uh, right speech and right action is superior when it's based upon a purification of mind or the mind is purified. But there's the other side of the story in the sense of the, uh, um, the cause and effect. Having good behavior 
and having good uh, language or keeping the precepts does not guarantee anything. You can, and in fact, you can get caught and beaten for doing the wrong thing, even though you didn't do anything wrong. So there's no guarantees in any of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing, because a lot of people have the idea that all oh, Siva or your morality is necessary before you can become enlightened. The answer is no. But when you do become enlightened, then your behavior is going to be exemplary. That's the right way to look at it. And so when you're in the store about to shoplift something, instead of thinking about, oh, I might get caught or what are the repercussions and all of that, look at why we want it. What's the point? Why do we want this thing? Some people want things and want to steal them because they think that the store charges too much money for it. And because I'm right that you charge too much money for it, it's okay for me to steal it from you. Okay, this is some of the mentality that we have for justifying our wrongdoing. But if we don't want it in the first place, then we don't care whether the store is charging too much money for it. Mm-hmm. We don't want it. That's the, I'm satisfied with the way that I am right now. So this is the practice, is the practice of being satisfied. Because if you are satisfied, your behavior is going to be nice. You're going to have a really nice lifestyle. Mm. So that's the way to go, rather than... There's another way of looking at it. And this, in fact, you can see it in several religions, including Buddhism. And the, the term that I would use would be a goody two-shoes. Do you know what a goody two-shoes is? One who always knows the right rule always knows the correct behavior, and even if sometimes they make sure everybody knows that he knows the right behavior. Okay? He's the enforcer or the, the rule keeper, and the main one who he keeps the rules with is himself. But the problem with the guy who is so intent on keeping every little rule correctly is that he feels bad at every tiny little transgression. And he hasn't really uh, done the real job of cleaning out the mind. And so his good behavior is still based upon the fact that he's quite miserable on the inside. And so that kind of proves that good behavior and good speech and good livelihood does not lead to freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. But getting the mind cleaned out and getting the mind free will, in fact, promote and wind up in good behavior. Yeah, yeah. So that direction it works. The cause-effect works in that direction. But sila causing freedom or morality causes freedom don't happen. Morality on its own is a box, a box of misery. And also, it almost always has hypocrisy built into it. Well, if I can't keep my rule myself, or it's irrelevant whether I do or not, 
then at least I can enforce my rule on someone else. A clear example of that is right to life. Hmm? I think it's wrong for babies to die. Therefore, I'm going to make a rule that other people have to suffer and carry my baby for me because I'm really more interested in how I feel about your baby than I am about you and how you feel about your baby. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is what right to life is, and that's also what comes from the rule followers, the ones who make up the rules, try to make them for everybody. This is what we mean by the goody two-shoes. Goody two-shoes is almost, a hip, almost always hypocritical in the sense that they do what they, uh, their, their motto is, do what I tell you to do, don't do the way I do it. Hmm. So um, that is not liberating for anyone. Yeah, yeah. No one is liberated that way. So rules don't work. That's the important point. The rules don't create purity. Yeah. But purity does create marvelous behavior. Gotcha. Gotcha. Great. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's right there in the sutta, and yet many people misunderstand that. Because they talk about sila comes first. Okay. Well, here's how that works. First off, let's take the long duration off of it. Because when we have the long duration of it, it looks like that what people mean is, is that you have to have years and years of correct behavior before you can purify the mind. And you have to have years and years of purification of mind before you can have purification of view. This is completely bonkers. Basically what this statement is saying is, is that first, we need to get ourselves secluded so that we can have at this point in time, perfect sila. What does that mean? Going into the meditation hall and sitting down closing our eyes, folding our legs and, and arms, and at that point, our, our, out, our external behavior is perfect. That is perfection of sila, or at least purification of sila. So now that we've sat down and uh, sitting in a, in a quiet room, uh, the next thing to do is to, to quiet the mind, to get the hindrances out. Right? We can do that within, you know, one or two minutes. Number one, sit down. Number two, clear the mind. We don't have to wait years and years and years of good sila before now we can start to practice. Hmm. And yet many ways they start it like that. I know there's a group of Buddhist monks uh, in Thailand that are that way in the sense that uh, their whole show is perfect behavior. And the reason that it got started like that is because of chauvinism, that that group is not good enough. And that group says, yes, we are, and we're going to prove it because we're going to have absolutely exemplary sila. But now that they've got the sila perfect, they still haven't gotten anywhere. 
Yeah. Having perfection of behavior is nothing on the Eightfold Noble Path. Not in the sense of that long-term direction. Oh, no, you just need enough, Sila, right now to stop hitting your sister long enough to take a deep breath, basically, is what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this is what we mean by Sila. Sila actually is the forerunner in the sense that we have to stop our bad behavior right now so that we can then um, um, get our mind into a good state. It's really, really hard to have a mind full of wholesome thoughts while we're still beating up on our sister. Checks out, yeah. Yeah, so that's why it is like that. And we have to say, okay, we're talking about always a right now. We're not talking about a long distance kind of thing. We're not talking about Sila over the months or over the years. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Sila right now. How's our Sila right now? Right now has got to be perfect. But eventually, when the mind becomes unified and organized, then we just naturally refrain from um, causing harm just like we're naturally now beginning to take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Habit forming. The Dhamma is habit forming. In fact, it is a wholesome addiction. We want to become addicted to the Dhamma. Why? Because what else is there to become addicted to is generally unwholesome. Smoking. Yeah, yeah. Drinking alcohol, taking drugs, sexuality, uh, workaholics, Christaholics. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. Well, the way to do it is Dhammaholic. Oh, really? Because that's wholesome. <laughs> and so it's worth attaching to. Mm -hmm. There are some attachments that are worth attaching to. The Eightfold Noble Path, the Dhamma itself, this present moment, joy. These are the things that we should attach to. What are the things that are not worthy attaching to is fear, anger, depression, frustration, anxiety. Those are all of the bad feelings that we do get into the habit of doing. Many people get addicted to feeling bad. Many people, some people are angry almost all the time. They're addicted to their anger. That's their major habit. Mm -hmm. But we've got a really wholesome, we've got a wholesome addiction. And so in the sutras, it talks actually about becoming eager, eager for the Dhamma, eager to hear the Dhamma, eager to enjoy the Dhamma, to become delighted in the Dhamma. And so this is the way that we practice, mm -hmm. by becoming delighted in the Dhamma. Yeah. So when I... Uh... When I hear that, I'm like, oh, I should become eager. There's something like a little, uh, it's, I don't know, it's tough to describe, but it's like this sense of like, oh, I need to start being eager right now and like, you know, be eager. And so that's like a negative, that's an unwholesome thought, right? So if the eagerness is for yeah. something unwholesome, mm -hmm then it will be unwholesome. If the eagerness is for the wholesome, then it will bring about the wholesome. Mm. Okay? 
that's the same. But generally, this is this eagerness that we're talking about is built upon the insight, and we almost always think of insight is being able to see deeper, to look at it and see it in a new way. There's another mm-hmm. word that we can add to that word, um, insight or vipassana, and that would be, and by the way, it's a very long poly phrase. We won't go into it. Mm-hmm. But it does have the quality of um, inspiration. It has mm-hmm. a wow kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We become inspired. And, and you, just saw, you just saw me make an example by both lifting my, my arm and also taking an in-breath, inspired. Mm-hmm. That's inspiration, okay? okay. It's, it's almost always associated with an in-breath. Yeah. Okay, to become full, to get it, to inspire. Yeah. That actually is a kind of eagerness, um, that eagerness or that um, it's an energy on its own, which basically takes much of the effort. For the beginning student, it seems like a lot of effort to, to take deep breath over and over and over again. What's the point? You know, and mm-hmm. the old negative mind will start uh, finding all the things wrong. This is too much work or, oh, you can't do it or all of that kind of stuff. And so in the beginning, it takes a bit of effort. But that, ex- that um, effort is um, helped along by the inspiration or by the attitude that we have of, I can do this. If we have a chore to do and we see it as a chore that we're doing because somebody else told us to do it and we have no interest in that chore, then doing that chore is going to be a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But we can do that same chore with a different attitude. This, this time, I want to do it. In other words, I like milking the cow. If dad tells me to milk the cow, milking that cow is going to be a lot of work. But if I milk the cow because I see the cow needs milking and I like to milk, then milking that cow is going to be easier. You can take that analogy then to everything you do. If you like doing it, it'll be easier to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the benefit of it, you don't know that you like it, then it's hard to do it. This is why it's hard to get started with the practice of meditation because it's foreign and in the very beginning the students don't have any benefit. Yeah. But once you begin to see the benefit, once you begin to see the results, once you can see that yes, I can make myself feel good and that I like it and then I can begin to develop it as a skill. So now that knowledge of good feelings in the next breath or two will then give us the energy that we need to take that deep breath so that it's not so much of an effort anymore. Yeah. This so is really why just, Pardon? Yeah, so you just, you know, sit down, like try and think good thoughts, and then just don't worry about it too much? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In fact, don't worry at all. That's the whole point, is yeah. to come out of our worry and have good, deep, wholesome thoughts completely. Mm-hmm. I can do this. Can I do this? That's worry. Can do. That's positive. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's getting a little bit late for me, so I think I'm going to have to head out. All but, right. Uh, it was well, good talking to you. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.
Great, great. I hope to see you again soon, Mark. Definitely, definitely. Right. Okay. And right. I hope that this will give you some um, um, inspiration for your practice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Thank you. Excellent. All right. Bye. All right. Well, we'll see you later. Thank you.